Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Jerry Ellsworth. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 194. Holy cow, that's a lot. <laughs> Jerry Ellsworth is a self-taught electrical engineer and entrepreneur with over 20 plus years experience designing and building mass market consumer electronics. She assembled the initial hardware R&D team for the Valve software and was a key contributor to the technology used in the popular HTC Vive. While at Valve, she began work on the AR technology that would later become the basis for the technology behind Tilt 5, where Jerry serves as CEO and co-founder. And chief mis mischief maker, too. <laughs> mischief maker, huh? <laughs> yeah. I had a hard time like spitting those words out. Thank you, Jerry, for coming on to our podcast. Thanks. It's, uh, it's an honor. We are having you on today to talk a little bit about Tilt 5. Uh, and a little a bit of what goes behind that, the manufacturing. But let's uh, let's go ahead and start by, uh, can you give us a description of what Tilt 5 is? Well, Tilt 5 is AR glasses. So it's these glasses you slip on, you flip open a game board, and magic just springs in front of you uh, just right out of the table. Oh, so AR is? Augmented reality. Okay. Freaking holograms on your table. <laughs> so what we've all dreamed about since we were kids watching Star Trek. And so, you know, I've been hooked on uh, the idea of trying to build this for years. And so that's what we've built. Um, we're primarily game focused right now because uh, we need to put all of our marketing dollars behind one thing. Um, but it actually can be used for a, <clears throat> a lot more than games. Um, it's also multiplayer. So uh, if you have multiple people, uh, around the table, you can all share this volumetric space and you can do a lot of really interesting uh, things with uh, having unique views into this 3D space. You know, for instance, if you're a, a dungeon master and you're doing a D&D &D game, you could set up your entire world map ahead of time, have all your monsters and traps in there and um, all your friends sitting around the table don't get to see the monsters until that moment that you want to spring it on them. And there's all these cool theatrics you can do as well. Like you can wave your hands over the, the game board and drop like an eerie fog into a valley or, you know, tell stories like the villagers told you not to enter the uh, cave. And then, but you did it anyway. And then you spring the monster on him. <laughs> I, I, I love when the DM says you did it anyway. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of adventure game would it be if you didn't just uh, go uh, head first into the, <laughs> the place you're not supposed to go. Um, and something that's also unique about our system is that you can link game boards together. So if your friends can't come over to play like that action uh, RTS game, uh, you can just link your game board. Now you have a shared uh, volumetric space between the two houses. And so when you move your hands through the 3D space, you can actually see your hands moving through. You're talking to your friends over the built-in speaker and microphone. We try to make the system uh, as integrated as possible. So it truly is the the glasses, you just slip them on and, and go, um, which is pretty unique in this space. There's a lot of VR and AR companies out there, but we're the first to really achieve this, um, you know, just slip it on and go kind of experience. So how does the glasses and this play field actually work? That's part of our like clever hack to um, make the system so low cost and make it such a great user experience. So the, uh, let me contrast it to other AR systems. So 
there's systems that try to put the light directly into your eyes. And there's a lot of challenges with this, primarily around physics itself. You can't bend light very fast. And so if you want your headset to be small and light and high performance, you'd end up with a really small image, a small field of view. And so observation I made way back when I worked at Valve Software was that there's this really cool material called retroreflector. And the way this material works is any light that strikes it returns directly back to where it came from. And so the way our glasses work is we have two HD projectors in the headset that project out to the game board. The light strikes the game board and then turns around and then comes directly back to the user. And so that's how each user gets their unique view. And it also allows us to use straightforward optics to make a super wide field of view. So we're 110 degree field of view. So it fills your whole table with graphics. And then there's a, another property to our system because the aperture on our, our uh, uh, projector is really small. The, the bundles of rays that go out to the, the retroflector and come back stay tightly uh, bundled and everything stays in focus over that entire range. So if you stick your nose into the game board, it's in focus. If you're two, two meters away from the game board, it's in focus. And that is almost impossible on a compact headset that tries to put the light directly in your eyes. In fact, there's no system out there that can do this uh, right now. The best is Magic Leap that can only do two levels of focus. And one of them is like, kind of like stretch your arms out as far as you can in front of you. That's the first focal plane. And then the next one is like way off in the distance, like six meters. And they did that through brute force by like having two copies of the optical system stacked on top of each other. Oh, when you mentioned brute force, I was actually thinking like the photons were like fighting each other or something. <laughs> <laughs> one, two photon enter, one leave. Yeah. The um, So retroreflectors, uh, that's what they what NASA put on the moon, correct? Yeah. For measuring the distance. Yeah. Retroreflectors are these really awesome like optical systems. And there's different ways to do it. Ours use little glass spheres that are metalized on the backside that are embedded into this film. Uh, there's also cube corners, like if you were to slice a corner off of a cube of glass, and uh, that's what they put on the the moon was a giant cube corner that uh, they shoot lasers into and bounces back. There's actually uh, cube corner films as well, which are really amazing, um, completely unnecessary for what we're doing, but they look beautiful. Like they uh, are very... Uh, very precise, all these really precise um, cube corners embedded in a plastic film. See retroflector on things like road signs. Um, if you have any jogging gear that has like the silver stripe down the side, um, that's retroreflector. So is that something that y'all developed in-house and get manufactured or something that you found off shelf? Uh, the retroflector we uh, found off the shelf. It's in fact, we use the lowest cost retroflector you can get um, because we can't see any difference between the high end stuff and the low end stuff for our application. So we have a processor that um, processes it and laminates it to a chipboard, kind of like game board material. And then silk screens, uh, a tracking border. So our headset tracks the game board. So we need to know where you are in the world. And uh, this border that's silk screened around the outside helps us figure out where north is and where the user is. And but but that that's also the uh, the glasses are using that border to track 
in, in effect, your head motion, right? Correct. Inside the headset is two cameras. So we have one camera. It's a super wide field of view. It's 145-ish degree field of view, which is this huge cone of, of tracking space in front of you. And that's used to track the game board. So it actually tracks the game board when you're not even looking at the game board. You can be like looking way off to the side. It knows where the game board is. And um, it also tracks, we have a six degrees of freedom wand, so you can carve through 3D space with it and interact with the game characters. Um, so that camera tracks that wand. And so our headset emits uh, 850 nanometer infrared light. Um, we're one of the only systems out there that can work in complete darkness. You know, of course, gamers like to play games in the dark. So we had to put IR emitters on the headset yeah, the, the the best thing about it being a DM is, you know, the ambience, having the yeah. lights down and Yeah, we need to I need to work on uh work with the software team and get them to put like hue lighting control so you can trigger that from within uh oh. your DD game. <laughs> <laughs> the eerie mist settles into the valley and then the lights go down. Fog of war. <laughs> yeah, tr- literally the fog of war. <laughs> but our um our system can work in full daylight to uh to darkness because of this infrared emitter that's in there. Uh, Then we have a secondary camera, which is a high resolution uh, camera that's on a totally different wavelength. And each of these cameras have dichroic uh, filters on them that are bandpass filters that only let that wavelength of light through. And so that one's running at 940 nanometers. It's a little bit narrower field of view. It's 90 degrees and it's really high resolution. And we use the um, IR LEDs to give us global shutter um, exposure with it, which is really cool. Like there's two types of image sensors out there, the way they operate as far as exposure. There's like rolling shutter. And we've all seen like on your cell phone, if you whip your cell phone sideways really fast when you're taking a picture, everything looks like a trapezoid, like kind of skews. That's because one scan line at a time is being exposed and uh, shifted out of the image sensor. In our case, we found an image sensor that we could ex- set the exposure j- just right so they're exposing all the time. And we put it behind this like very specific filter and then we flash the infrared for a very short period of time and really intensely. And we get a snapshot of the whole image and then we scan it out uh, normally. Um, if we were to actually buy an eight megapixel uh, global shutter sensor, it probably cost as much as our headset. But through this clever trick, we're able to uh, uh, have uh, 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 rolling shutter, artifact-free, blur-free tracking of objects. And this high-resolution camera is used for tracking hands, tracking playing cards, um, other objects that you put on the table. So we can actually take like your, your miniature, like a miniature dragon, right? And you, you mini and you put it down and we could put virtual fire that it's breathing out of it because we can track its position with that camera. So there's a lot of really cool stuff we can do with physical objects as well. Is there any reason why, well, it's obvious that they're using two different wavelengths to, so they have an independent light source or a photon source, I, would sh- I should say. Yeah. Is there any reason why one is such shorter than the other one? Yeah, we use a deeper infrared for the what we call the machine vision or the computer vision camera, because it's pretty far away from any source that's out in the environment, Um, incandescent light bulbs, uh, sunlight, things like that. 
we really don't have any problem tracking the game board if sunlight's shining on the game board and it happens to have a lot of 850 nanometer light in it. But we really wanted to make sure, like on a playing card, you want to extract out like fine details or a, a miniature, you want to find the fine details on it. We wanted to be far away from any um, natural source of, of light. And then on that particular dichroic filter, we actually, um, there's two two stacked filters in there. We made it extremely narrow, which uh, reduces the uh, throughput efficiency, but we made it extra narrow because we could really hammer the 940 uh, nanometer LEDs really hard and make up for it. And that just gave us more dynamic range to eliminate um, ambient sources. Gotcha. Sorry, hopefully that wasn't too like <laughs> too deep. No, that, into, that was awesome. And um, optics, and I, I I totally dig that stuff. I I uh, not trained in optics, but I actually designed a lot of these systems that went into our our headset. The uh, I designed the projectors. A lot of well, not entirely, but I designed big parts of the projectors. I designed a lot of the camera system. Uh, there's actually two silver little lenses that are in front of your eyes. Um, those are really special lenses. So the projectors actually project downward towards these angled reflectors and bounce off those and go out to the reflective surface. And there's a bunch of um, polarization control that I came up with that makes our lenses about 85% efficient. So if you were to say, just put a 50-50 beam splitter in front of your eye and try to bounce a reflect uh, projector off of it, 50% of your light goes through and is wasted on your face. 50% goes out to the game board, bounces off the game board, comes back. Now 25% of the remaining, or 50% of the remaining light goes up to the projector again, and only 25% finally makes it to your eyes. And so through controlling polarization on every single bounce, um, I was able to get the efficiency really, really high. Of course, to give credit to the actual optical engineers, I came up with these crazy ideas, prototyped them. Actually, the first prototypes were on my coffee table, and then I handed it to the pros to refine it and make it even better. But um, super fun. I mean, this has been a dream project working on all this really cool optics. So, so are you, are you not getting much uh, reflection back into your eyes from the lenses? Mm, no. There's actually um, part of our patents are on like controlling the backside um, reflecting reflectance. So when you see the the backside of the glasses, they're dark gray. When you see the front, it's silver. And so we have tons of patents around the optical systems in our our headset. Um, in fact, the very first prototype that I made. Um, it was like, well, I don't think it's going to really work because you have these kind of angled reflectors in front of you and you're seeing all of this reflectance coming up from like your shirt and stuff and it's getting to your eyes. So the ambient light in the room was making it a bad experience. So uh, we solved that and patented it. And Don't violate my patents. <laughs> might get litigious <laughs> on you. So uh, what, what, what kind of team did you have uh, for developing this? So it's interesting. I started this project all the way back at Valve Software. So I started learning about AR. It was pretty amazing. Uh, Valve Software hired me to put the team together there. And so we put together this really amazing dream team. And we were given the, the mission to bring the whole family together in the living room to play games because Valve's all about games. 
And so we did a ton of fundamental research on everything from VR systems and AR systems and reading people's minds with galvanic uh, feedback systems and reading people's pupil dilations. We actually like could read people's emotions with super high accuracy, and then we could feed that back into games to make games more fun. Um, that was a really, it was an awesome opportunity for me to be in that environment because we had unlimited budget pretty much. And this mission to just solve these problems no matter what. And it actually let me see probably 20 years into the future, like just through brute force, like we were making these contraptions that were insanely expensive, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and strapping them onto our heads. And then, you know, like, wow, the future is awesome. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And actually retro reflection and using it for display was something I discovered there and prototyped there. Valve decided they wanted to go all in on VR. They didn't want to do AR, so they cut the entire AR team, which I was on. And I ended up going back to the founder of, the, of Valve Software. I'm like, you should just sell me this technology because we'd prototyped a very early version of this. And they, I guess they didn't think there was much to it then, but I could see where it was going. And so I, I purchased it for $100 and a bunch of legal fees and a handshake. And uh, I started a company called Cast AR with that, with a couple people from Valve. And uh, we did that for a, a few years, made some prototypes. We did a Kickstarter, uh, shipped some units, ended up refunding the Kickstarter money to everybody when uh, we took some investment from a Silicon Valley investor that wanted to take us in a, a different crazy direction which ended up crashing the company completely. Um, so that happened a couple of years ago. Like we ran off the rails with this crazy investor and uh, a group of us were like, gosh, it's, it's such a great piece of tech. We can't let it die. So we all uh, pooled our money together and we purchased all the patents and the technology again and uh, started this company called Tilt5, which is the, the latest venture. And we spent two years, almost two years, uh, refining the product. So we've come a long ways in two years. Um, what we had at Cast AR was pretty good, but this is freaking awesome now. Um, yeah. So let's get into the, uh, in, like the design behind the current iteration of it. Cause I yeah. actually got to see it way back when you first brought it to Maker Fair. Oh God, the hot glue prototypes. Yeah. And it was inside that little tent. Yeah. 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 Um, back then, we didn't have any of this polarization control. We not nearly as refined. Well, it was all like it was like hot glue and like you <laughs> couldn't you couldn't. So Stephen, you couldn't actually touch it. Like they had to put it on you. It was so that's a funny it worked story. Great, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, it looked great. Um, it was just not as bright as the new glasses. Like we actually have to turn the projectors now down on the new pro- uh, glasses because they hurt your eyes. They're too bright. Um, those old designs, we just shot the light out above your eyes. And because retroflexion brings it right back to the projector, most of the light was going right back into the projector. And we just like dealt with a little bit of scatter um, so you could see it. So it was super dim. So, so that's why you have the, the, the splitter that's in front of you. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. So now the light um, comes coaxial out from your eyes and comes directly back to your eyes. So... Um, the projectors only put out 0.65 lumens maximum. And most of the time we run it like half brightness because it's just too bright. Um, 
to put that into perspective, like a home projector, like if you were to shine it on the wall is like 600 lumens and we're 0.65 lumens. So big, big difference in uh, brightness. It's, it's actually so dim of light that we project out. If you put your hand in front or a white piece of paper, you can't see it projecting onto the white paper because just not enough light is there to come back. But since it's all focused on your eye, it looks like the super bright image. Um, it's, it's a really clever hack to uh, solve all these physics problems. Um, some of the things that we did in this last year that are really neat in the new headset is people are probably familiar with virtual reality. Some of you, your listeners probably have virtual reality rigs and you either have to have a highly optimized, like self-contained system that has kind of limited uh, uh, user experiences because it's got to run real time. You got to keep that 90 frames per second up. Um, or you have like one of the HTC systems, like our the system that Valve did, where you have to have a big, macho, beefy PC with like a you know the, the high-end video card to maintain that 90 frames per second, or you have a bad experience. What we did, and I was talking about this even back at the Valve days, I'm like, someday in the future, there'll never be a V-Sync in video. You won't you won't worry about V-Sync. You'll just render the, the image on your game uh, engine and just send it as soon as it's done. And the headset is going to take that and reproject it and upscale the frame rate to a higher frame rate. So that's what we did. Uh, we, were, we developed that over the last two years. So your game engine renders whatever speed it can render. It can render at say 15 frames per second, sends it over USB as soon as it's done. It doesn't wait for a V-sync, so you don't have to take that penalty of having a vertical sync. And uh, uh, then it lands up in the headset and then it gets upscaled to 180 frames per second. And then we have a tracking algorithm that runs right in the headset. So we have a tight loop in the headset that is reprojecting the image and uh, doing all these transforms on the image to keep it locked on the table. So when you wiggle your head around, even if the frame rate of the game engine drops you know, really low, the image is just buttery smooth and stuck on the game board. So you're, what you what you're... Your headset is basically unlocked from the game frame rate. Is yeah, that what makes yeah. It? yeah. So the concept of vertical sync is something that came about 80 years ago or 100 years ago when television was invented. So, you know, there's this, a raster beam that's scanning out the pixels to your, your display, and there was a vertical sync signal. Computers came along like in the 60s and 70s and started utilizing television technology to create graphics. And so they just utilized vertical sync. So you render your image and then you wait for vertical sync and then you scan it out really slowly to the display. And so that's stuck around clear up until, you know, HDMI and DVI connection still has a vertical sync. And so what we've done is it's like, there's no reason to wait for you know, vertical, vertical sync to come along. It's just as soon as the picture is done, you just send it up to the headset. And as long as you're doing this uh, tracking and reprojection, it doesn't matter. Like if, if you can render it 90 frames per second, awesome. If you can render it 15 frames per second, awesome. And that what that means for the end user is that you can plug into kind of modest cell phones and have a great experience, or you can plug into a PC and have a great experience. Like my demo system that I take out on the road just uses integrated Intel graphics on it, 
which usually blows. Like if I see someone from the VR community, I'm like, yeah, this is just a, a chintzy little Dell with a Intel graphics. They're like, what? How? <laughs> and it also means that you can run multiple headsets off of one computer because you're not locked to having to maintain a super high frame rate. So that's one of our proudest inventions that we've done in the last couple of years. And we're the only company that's doing it. So uh, yeah, we rock. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the actual headset itself, um, one of the like talking points in your uh, Kickstarter and stuff was it was under 90 grams. Yeah, that was hard to do. Like, how important was that number to hit, and um, what were some <laughs> of like the shortcuts or ways you were able to pull that off? I mean, this goes clear back to Valve. Also, we uh, we forced people to wear weighted uh, like safety goggles around all day, and we would put lead weights on them, and like then we'd ask people like, how horrible was it putting? you know, 400 grams on your face. Oh, my nose fell off. Right. And so we kind of honed in on this like sub 90 gram weight is kind of the threshold where you have to hit. And so for all these years, I've had that threshold. It's like, it's gotta be less than 90 grams. You know, if you want to wear it for hours, VR systems are a little bit different. Like you have these big giant like ratchets and you just crank it down on your face and it just face sucks to your face and you can like tolerate a little bit more weight <laughs> that way, but you end up with like this, it's a horrible experience because you have these red marks all around your face and it's heavy and your neck gets tired. Um, so everything adds up in the headset and it's, it's surprising uh, what you have to do to actually get under 90 grams. And so our optics in the projectors actually were a big contributor to it. And we were over 100 grams uh, going into um, starting tilt five. And so we worked with our optics manufacturer to eliminate um, like one third of our optical path. And so the new projection system we came up with, instead of having uh, duplicate red, green, and blue uh, LEDs and collimating lenses and dichroic combiners, um, I had read about this optical technique uh, used in microscopy to use a, a special type of combiner. I won't reveal that. But the special combiner where you could take a red and a green LED and stick right next to each other and combine them into a coaxial beam without having to have all this extra optics. So that saved us a ton of weight because we got rid of you know, a couple lenses, a couple dichroic combiners and a bunch of plastic to hold it. So that shaved off like five grams. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, everything counts. And then uh, a bunch of other things that we did, uh, we did kind of a car technique, right? You know, you, you can have a chassis, right? In a car and it can be kind of separate from the body or you can unitize everything. So um, we did a lot of work into like our circuit board is actually a, uh, a strengthener in the actual glasses. So the glasses have to be dimensionally stable. So if the glasses are bending all over the place and these projectors are going off in different, ang different angles when you flex the glasses, it's a bad user experience. Um, the images won't line up correctly. 
but we needed the glasses to be super rigid so that those projectors never are pointing in the wrong direction. So we used circuit board as part of the um, strengthening member in the, the glasses, um, which was a little scary. I mean, we had to do a bunch of drop testing to make sure that parts weren't going to pop off the board and, you know, actually using it. But it turns out it's okay. Like we, we, we grabbed a bunch of different uh, places and screwed it down uh, to the main uh, plastic in the chassis and, and made it, um, very rigid. And then choice of materials too was important. So one of our earlier design had a die cast zinc um, bracket inside of it to, to make it a little bit more rigid. And so we put a ton of work into replacing that with a very clever shaped uh, piece of nylon. So it has lots of ribbing and uh, kind of maximizes the stiffness of it, yet um, is light. So it's just tons of stuff like that. We just had to keep iterating. It was just like, Ooh, just saved a half a gram. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got it down to about 85 grams. And so that's, and, and when I say 85 grams, that's, I mean, if you had 85 grams on the tip of your nose, that would be bad. So like, there's a little bit more tolerance to like, can we shift the weight back? Can we, we can tolerate more weight in the arms versus hanging out cantilevered off of your face or, or up high and cantilevered. So we had to think about that a lot too. It's, it's kind of tragic. Like we're such a small team. There's like, I saw more opportunity in there to save some weight. Like there's, we weren't quite sure how big the projectors were going to be when they came back. So we left like a little bit bigger cavity where the projectors were going to go. I'm like, Ooh, Ah, dang it. <laughs> like if I had only known in advance the, the size of the projectors, we could have like cut out like a, you know, an extra half quarter a of a gram or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's actually uh, the next topic I wanted to cover is, um, so you brought a lot of products to consumer markets and stuff. And one thing I want to talk about is prototyping your finalized product. Oh yeah. Or, or first article. So, it sounds like you have the molds done, and so you couldn't make new molds. Air quote done. Um, <laughs> It'll, it's always air quotes done. Yeah. So, You're yeah, basically parts with high NRE fees, like injection molding, how do you, like, you get to the point where, like, you still need to prototype stuff, but how do you, how do, you do that? Well, you know, there's these, like, no-go gates that you get to and it's just like you just have to put a stake in the ground and you just have to commit and so we did lots of 3d printing and it's you know when you're working with nylons there's you know resin material that's pretty close so you're pretty sure what it's going to weigh so you do a ton of 3d printing but then there's these situations like the um, projectors where you just don't have final dimensions and those are going to be coming in late and you just have to accept that and so you know, we committed to tools, we cut tools, and there's a few things that you do when you cut your tools is you uh, you don't texture them right away. Uh, only fools texture their tools right away. So, um, and it was a good thing we didn't texture our tools because like right now, like you guys are watching on video, but um, on our hinge, the, the actual hinge pin itself is misplaced. These arms are supposed to swing up and latch into place. There's a little detent uh, feature inside, but they don't, they just, they, they drop down. And then there's a little ledge here because this pin is in the wrong place. So, uh, oops, 
uh, we're going to have to. <laughs> the glasses are actually completely functional the way they are, but we're going to have to um, cut a big hole in our tool and um, put an insert in there and move that pin a little bit. And hopefully we get it right the second time. We're going to have to pay through the nose to do that. Um, there's a couple little like tweaks that we want to do. Um, we know that kids are going to be using these. So we were at a trade show and some kid grabbed it and like bent the arm way back and it like fresh, uh, it fractured in one area. Like, okay, we're going to have to like look at that radius, you know, cause you know, some five-year-old's going to grab this thing and bend the arms out 90 degrees from the, um, so we'll make some adjustments there. Um, that's just going to be removing material. So that's cheap. Um, and makes it lighter. No, it actually adds a little bit, but it's on the arms. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, can't they can't they just you know get out the TIG welder, add a little bit of material, and then remachine it? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, you can do stuff like that. Um, yeah, we still have to texture the tools. It's kind of like it's. I wish they were textured because uh, our wand prototypes have texture on them, and it just looks so nice. But these, um, it's funny, like plastic tools before they're textured look so cheap and like toy-like because toy companies for you know usually don't texture their tools so i can see all the buff marks in it and so so i i got a question about that i don't think parker and i have really ever discussed that on the podcast so just a quick side how do you pick a texture like how first of all how do you know and then how do you determine <laughs> and then how do you tell your manufacturer i want it to be x bumpy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's a good question. I mean, because there's lots of textures you can choose. And uh, there's actual sample books where, um, and I have them in the other room, actually. I've been dreading going through picking the last texture on this. It's like, you look at these sample books and um, and you add it to your CMF document. Uh, I'm trying to remember what CMF is. Whatever, it's the finish um, of the... Uh, of the material of the final plastic materials and then you give it to the manufacturer and then they take your tool out to a place that treats it with like chemical etches and things to put these little pits or hit it with like um so soda blasting or something yeah there's i honestly i don't actually know um how they put the texture in there except for that sometimes it's chemical sometimes it's like uh steel shot and stuff. And then you have your tool hardened. Um, so yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll pick one and we'll be surprised and we'll have to be happy with whatever it is. Cause we're not going <laughs> to cut another tool. <laughs> I, I recently went through that exercise at, uh, at my work. Uh, we, we designed some light pipes and, um, we wanted, we wanted the tip of the light pipe to have a pretty particular diffusion pattern, uh, mm. just some of the light pipes we had been dealing with had a very light diffusion on top. And if you were just right in the beam, it was absolutely blind. Too bright. Yeah, it was, it yeah. was ridiculous. So going through the exercise of finding the right finish is really tough. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my gripes of new LEDs and products. Like they're too freaking bright. Yeah. The blue LED of doom. I know. Like <laughs> take me back to the 1980s when you had, uh, Amber. Hey, yeah, amber, gross green, and <laughs> gross red. Green. I want to go to Mauser <laughs> and search for gross green now. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the new colors are nice and vibrant, but uh, 
uh, a little too bright. Like it's like Christmas every day and uh, looking at some of this consumer product with all these like super saturated bright colors. Yeah. I actually have a, a like a, a USB uh, hub on my desk here and I actually have a piece of tape over the LEDs because they're just, they're just blue blinding. Like actually, if I took that tape off, you would see them on my glasses, how bright they are. The, the thing that baffles me is people that put those into battery operated devices. Like, you know, I worked in the toy industry for quite a few years and red LEDs were our workhorse because, you know, you know, 1.2 volts, you know, super efficient, you know, you're not going to run your batteries down cheap, 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 cheap. Um, you know, why put a, you know, a, uh, 2.6 or a, a three volt uh, LED in there and burn all that power and, and turn it into photons when you don't have to. I, I, I had a customer that actually uh, called out a pink LED the other day and, oh, yeah, and we found it and we put it on their product and it's, I didn't even know that you could have pink and you can. Yeah. I, I discovered those a few years ago. I'm like pink. That's cool. It's, it's cool that they can just craft any band gap they want now in LEDs and give you pretty much any color. Um, I mean, the first time I saw a, like a commercial blue LED, I'm like, Oh my God, this is just like something else. Like you guys are probably too young to remember the first <laughs> blue LEDs coming out, but I, I remember, I remember being younger and they were a lot more expensive. That's for sure. Oh yeah. 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 Or my, my first UV LED that I got, I went to arrow or Mauser somewhere. Uh, I had to like sign a waiver that the thing was actually dangerous. <laughs> I remember uh, when I first started buying LEDs is from a website called lsdiodes.com and they unfortunately <laughs> went out of business um, LSD man yeah and uh, man, that must have been when I was back in high school though and uh, but yeah I, I think it was because like did like I didn't know about Digikey or Mauser and um, but yeah they just were uh, like a you know T5 T3 LED supplier <laughs> But you can get you can get UV. I bought UV LEDs and stuff like that to experiment with. I mean, I, the last bunch of LEDs I got for an art project I got from like I don't know one of these like Deal Extreme websites. It was like ten zillion LEDs for five bucks, and <laughs> they're obviously the floor sweepings because like the blue LEDs are all of different like uh, uh, color and brightness and. <laughs> The ones that did not pass the uh, automated test. Yeah, I'd put them into toys though. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, on on the product uh, to consumer market stuff. Um, so on the electronics, like sourcing the components and stuff. Like, how big of a deal is that for your products? I don't know how many you're going to build. Yeah. Right? What's the quantity? Uh, well, we have a Kickstarter going uh, right now, and uh, everyone should go there and support us. We need as much support as we can. Go, go, go. Support us, support us, support us. <laughs> Actually, just as a quick update, I'm, I'm on the Kickstarter right now. You guys are currently sitting at 1.317 million out of a 450,000 goal with 13 days left. Yay. So, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as you can see, well, let's talk about the Kickstarter and then I'll talk about sourcing because it all kind of ties together. So we set our initial goal of like, how can we produce this thing and not like have to uh, sell um, 
our plasma every weekend. You know, to <laughs> I was going to say kidneys, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so our initial goal was like we did a lot of um, back of the envelope calculations. I mean, we have our supply chain pretty well in place, but you just never know, especially with all this trade war stuff going on. So we were pretty scared. We said like, okay, uh, 450K, we think that, you know, we won't lose money, but we're not going to make any money. Um, and then we'd have to go like hustle investors to keep going. Um, so yeah, yay, we hit that. Now we're starting to get into the realm where we can start doing uh, volume buying, where it starts to make more sense. We can actually make some margin on the product, which is exciting. So we really want to keep pushing like that number higher so that we can actually produce enough units that make sense that we can uh, do this volume pricing. Now that comes to sourcing, it's really tricky. And it like I have ulcers just thinking about it uh, every single night because um, I hate to build products that have single source components, but there's a couple single source components in our, our device. And uh, we're a small fish in a big pond. And one of the parts in there, one of the semiconductors, uh, we really, really needed this. There's no other option. So I approached the, the group that was in a bigger company directly and they're like, yeah, go away, kid, don't uh, bother us. And so like, but we really need this part. And so I started, luckily I have kind of deep connections in the semiconductor industry through my LinkedIn. So I just started working my way up the chain. And then finally I found someone that was like some VP of some business unit that kind of was above the top and like, please help me. And they like rattled the, uh, someone's chain below and they're like, okay, we'll work with you. And they haven't been particularly great to work with because they're just not interested in our, you know, five to 10,000 units that we're going to um, purchase. So a little scared that at any moment they may just change pricing on us or uh, decide to give it all to, you know, Google or somewhere mm -hmm. instead of us. Uh, so that's always a, a, a fear. But my design philosophy around supply chain is always have second sources when you can. So um, one of my pet peeves is designing in uh power supply regulators, switching supplies that are single source. I'll never do that. So I always, uh, when I design my my circuits is, I, okay, here's the generic switching supply. I might have to give up like a half a percent efficiency. And instead of using the uh, Maxim semiconductor really cool thing, um, I'm going to use one that there's three or four different sources. So that's that's really important. That way you can uh, pivot at the last minute and get like the cheaper part or the a second source for it. So you actually have like three or four different power supply or designs really that are all functionally the same. It's just they have different part sources. Uh, yeah, same footprint. Oh, okay. Same footprint. Maybe I'll have to drop in a different inductor or something to um, to make them work. And so those are the kinds of things I'm always looking for when I'm specking out um, my design. Like, and sometimes you have to put more money into the design too. Like, I mean, there's these really groovy like volt uh, power supply chips that you can have like three uh, supplies coming out of one, but you can't second source source them. So 
if for whatever reason that source dries up temporarily. Yeah, when it comes to manufacturing, like you can't manufacture until every part is there. So it could be like the simplest, stupidest thing, like the um, screw that holds the arms in. Like you can't get that. And so production's held up for weeks while you're waiting for that particular stainless steel screw to show up. And it's, I don't know, that comes from, I think that comes uh, from being beat up so much in the toy industry because the toy industry has these design cycles where they plan one year in advance what their next Christmas toy is going to be. And you have a year to build it and a year to manufacture it. And there's certain checkpoints you have to hit. Like there's, they're manufactured in China typically, and there's fast boats out of China and there's slow boats out of China and the slow ones are cheap. The fast ones cost more and heaven forbid, for some reason you can't get your production done in time. You have to air freight things out. Um, you lose all of your um, profit. And so the fear of God was uh, beaten into me. <laughs> Never miss your production uh, date. So have as many escape routes as possible. And I've done that. Like I've, I've been like, we do our pilot run. We push the first like hundred units through, like we're good to go. And then all of a sudden we get a message from the procurement department that, oh, that voltage regulator, you know, we were able to get a hundred of them, but we couldn't get the 250,000 of them that you need next week. <laughs> so it's like, oh my God. And I didn't think that was a problem when they built the hundred. I, it happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, we're doing a Kickstarter and having done a Kickstarter before, if, if you're a nanosecond late, that's when people come out of the woodworks and like, you're a fraud. We're going to the keyboard warriors right there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to do everything I can not to make that. I mean, we were on our, my first Kickstarter, I was late by, I don't know, maybe three months or something. It was probably the worst three months of my life. Like, like trying to show pictures, like here it is, here's production tooling, here's production plastics. We're, we're getting there, <laughs> but still you're gonna have the haters. Always. I uh, hope that answered your question. I think I went way off the beaten path on your question. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> when, when do you plan to actually uh, uh, supply product? Um, so we've been building units. So we have a bunch of developers that are working with the actual glasses now, which is super cool. Uh, we're doing another production run for um, developers that are lined up next month. And so some of those will be going out probably as early as like December. Um, those are all the game developers that are making the groovy content that's going to be on the system. And then uh, our first deliverable for Kickstarter is in Q1 of next year. And that is our early beta um, level. And so we've been trying to emphasize, do not back the early beta unless you want to help us find bugs. If you expect it to be a good product with no bugs, do not back us at that level. That's smart. <laughs> we only want the adventurous people that love hunting bugs. Um, it's been working. We haven't had too many like takers on that, that tier, which we limited to just a few hundred units. Uh, and then the actual shipments of units start in June, and we we filled up all of our slots for June. Uh, we've I think we filled up all of our slots for July. Oh, so you actually your Kickstarter has a built-in staging for your product release as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've been stair-stepping those. So like in June, it's a certain number that we felt comfortable, like shit's going to go sideways. And like, I'd rather it go sideways on like a few hundred units. Instead of your entire run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we can put our put the brakes on and say like, whoops, guys, sorry, we burned down everyone's house uh, with the last 200 units. Uh, let us fix that before we send out the next thousand. Uh, up to this point, so far, I think we've sold um, about 5,000 units. We have a, like 2,000 some odd backers, and most of them are backing at um, at least two pairs of glasses each, which is pretty awesome. Um, so we'll probably, I hope we can, we want to double that. Go out and support us, please, please. You know, actually, that brings up a, that brings up a question that I was considering when looking at your Kickstarter. Um, maybe, uh, you know, I was just kind of, glancing through the the options but some of the options um only come with one pair of glasses uh in a way that sort of seems to defeat the purpose uh at least for like gaming with somebody i mean i'm sure there's plenty of single player things in there uh what was the uh, uh the idea behind having one pair well we have a ton of uh solo play games so all the games that come free with the system are solo play or multiplayer um also uh, we're going to have a public lobby that you can go to. And so if you want to play a game of Catan with your friends, uh, you can just hook up with them there and play a game. Or if you don't have any friends available at the time to play that game of Catan, you can go on find a stranger and make a new friend and play the game. So there's a a reason to just buy one pair of glasses if you're just a, you know the only person in your household that will be playing the system or that's the the level that you can afford uh, our base kit is 299 dollars. it's not the cheapest thing in the world it's not terribly expensive uh, we also have a, a little more premium kit which is uh, 359 i think if i remember right and then uh, we have a three pack um which is like in the 800 range for like the family or, or your group of DD um, friends what's funny is uh, we wanted to give a discount to folks that were doing a group pack. And so we started working with our logistics company and we started crunching all the numbers. We're like, okay, we can do pick and pack for singles. We can do pick and pack for this more deluxe uh, kit. Uh, what kind of discount can we give for the two player pack? And the numbers just didn't work out. We couldn't give any discount. And like every way we tried to work it, it cost us too much to have that extra skew handled by the um, the uh, pick and pack company. <laughs> and so we just like, okay, we're just not going to put it in. People can just buy two single packs. It's cheaper to actually get two game boards, two pairs of glasses and wands and two boxes uh, than to actually have someone package it all up into a two player pack. And people have been like so upset at us that we don't give them a discount on a two-player pack. I'm like, well, sorry, you know, we're in this to try to like be a, a successful company that doesn't go out of business um, one month after we ship our glasses. So, <laughs> <laughs> no two-player. You just have to buy two of the single player and just have some spare bits. It's funny how those things work. Like it surprised us. Like we just couldn't believe it. Yeah, I'm sure. Th I'm sure there was a reason behind it. Uh, and sometimes you just have to play with what you got, right? Yeah, it's it's just weird. 
<laughs> okay, so how about the uh, retroflective material? Uh, do you have multiple sources for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of sources for that. Um, one of the interesting things working with the retroflective material is to find a converter, um, a factory that convert it, that uh, is used to working with chipboard, like game board material, but also doesn't like smear glue all over the top surface of it and like kind of mess it up and... It's a non-standard process, so that's kind of tricky. Um, besides that, it's like one of the simplest parts of our, our system. It's actually super robust. The material, since it's made to go on like jogging gear, um, it's washable. So if you like spill your Coke and pizza all over it, you just, we use Windex. Um, I'm constantly spilling my coffee all over it. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, Windex just works awesome for it. Um, but it can be destroyed. Like if you, it's, cardboard basically with this reflective material so if your kids jump in the middle of it and bend it all up well then you're just gonna have to like order another one they try to stomp the dragon yeah yeah so it's not it's like anything like it's not forever or if you take a crayon to it like if you can't get if you like smear wax on it and you can't get the wax off like i don't know what to tell you it's like don't do that (laughs) don't do that (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great all right so um do you have uh, any more war stories to tell? Gosh, war stories. I have all kinds of war stories. Um, let's see. Let me see if there's any tilt five war stories. Um, so what's been really interesting the last couple of years is so when we were at Cast AR, I saw things go horribly wrong by taking money from the wrong people and having the having them bring their leaders into our company to like take us off into different directions. And so when we all got together to buy the assets to the company, we made the decision that we're never going to get back into that situation. And uh, we, uh, we decided that we were going to be very picky who we took money from. And so through the last couple of years, you have to constantly be raising little bits of money to keep the company going. You have to hit milestones and investors want to see you hit certain milestones before they give you money. And so I'm part of my job was to go out and like visit all these venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road and various places in Silicon Valley. And I quickly started to pick up on code words that they use for, uh, we want to like replace you and put our own people in. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, uh, here's some of the code words. It's the most insulting thing ever. Like I get so mad. I almost like veins are probably popping out of my head when they say it. It's like, well, we'll give you money, but we want some adult supervision. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, that's rough. (laughs) You like I've run huge groups with large numbers of people. I've ran businesses before, you know, that's just code word for like, you think that you have better vision for the company than us. You know, it's a bunch of garbage. And so there were times where we were just a matter of like weeks from going out of business. And like, I'm talking to these investors and boop, here comes a code word for, we're going to like fuck you over and like bring our guys in to fluff you up and dump you to like Google or Facebook. Right. I mean, that's the angle of a lot of investors. So I had to walk away from money at times where we were about ready to go belly up. And multiple times we were near uh, death's door 
And just barely, I was able to scrounge enough money to like get us to the next checkpoint. So um, we're in a good place now, thank goodness. But uh, yeah, that's, it's a, a unpleasant um, part of startup life in Silicon Valley. And that's why so many startups fail is there's two things like there's the fluff and dump investors that want to just flip you for a bunch of money and they just don't really care about your vision of your product your or your goals. And then there's the herd mentality of investors where they, uh, this week it's uh, blockchain. I was about to say, I think augmented reality scooters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> investors are just like this herd of, pack animals that like, ooh, we heard yeah. that self-driving cars are hot this year. And so everything on the periphery just dies. You may have raised your money, but because uh, uh, Bitcoin and blockchain is hot, you can't raise money for your, your current project. And that's always like a risk. And I mean, let's face it, VR and AR didn't take off like all the hype um, suggested a few years ago which I think is good. Like, I think it's good that now we're in this kind of growth phase where <laughs> it didn't happen overnight and uh, the hype is gone. And now like real companies with real functional products with real uh, utility are showing up, you know, with pragmatic growth um, expectations. And so that's what we've been is just looking for people that believe in our vision and like, we had a lot of choices when we decided on what market to go after. We could have gone after all kinds of things. We could have done education. We could have done uh, professional tools for CAD uh, visualization. And so we weighed all of those choices. We talked about it a lot. And we kind of narrowed it down to like, we're the DNA of our company. We love games. That's the first place we want to go. Like it'd be fun to do a CAD visualization headset someday, but we know nothing about it and the sales cycle is like super long. So we started looking at like, well, we could, we could take on the $450 billion gaming market. Look at that huge market. Like if we could just even get 1% of that, we'd just be like, be amazing. Then um, we started analyzing like, well, how do we do that? Okay. We're going to be taking on Microsoft and Sony and steam and, it's like, there's no way we can deal with competing against companies that are putting a billion dollars worth of marketing a year into their products. And we started looking around like, well, where's a gaming space? Like, oh, tabletop games. There's not a lot of innovation there. There's actually a lot of trends pointing towards people wanting to play tabletop games. Like tabletop games are super hot right now. Uh, Kickstarters, like the biggest projects are all tabletop gaming. Uh, video game players, you look at the statistics of like why people play video games now, like like seven or eight years ago when I was at Valve, uh, we were doing these studies and we found that like 40% of the people go on and play games because they want to socialize with their friends. Now that number is almost 70% of the people that play video games just do it to socialize with their friends. And it's kind of a broken experience. Like the best you can do is voice chat and hang out in um, Fortnite, right? So we're actually providing like hang out with your friends around the table or hang out with your friends remotely and kind of feel like you're hanging out around the table by, you know, linking your game board. So we felt that it was 
an amazing um, opportunity. It's only a $7 billion market, but (laughs) (laughs) man, I'm I've turned into such a CEO lately, like constantly (laughs) spinning the story, uh, uh, knowing my TAM total addressable market. (laughs) No, no adult supervision needed. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm probably totally hurting all my chances to raise money by being so candid, but I really don't, really don't give a fuck. I'm sorry. Like (laughs) if anyone has problem with that, they're not our, the right partner for us. Hopefully you guys don't have a family, family friendly uh, podcast. Oh no. We, we stride between PG 13 and R. So I was trying, I did a podcast the other day. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, we usually don't uh, do F-bombs and stuff. And, like, maybe we'll go bleep that out. I'm like, oh, I have an idea. Take just, like, a junky piece of the um, the podcast and just, like, bleep every other word. And just, like, <laughs> just bleep, 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 bleep. Screws. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but they ended up leaving all the F-bombs in there, and they ended up not bleeping any of it. So, it, yeah, it, it – it- it takes more effort to bleep out stuff than just leaving like shit in. So yeah, darn. Well, darn. My someday I'm gonna be on a podcast. And I'm gonna convince them to bleep out like ten words in a row. <laughs> <laughs> so war stories. Let me think. Is there any other war stories? I mean, there's like the classic war stories that I've told time and time again about in the toy industry. I think the scariest one. So I was working on this project. It was the Commodore 64 joystick where I was hired to make a custom ASIC that emulated the entire Commodore 64. I'd never done a full custom ASIC before. It was a big risk, but I took it on. We pulled it off. Um, I made the ASIC just in the nick of time. Um, but there wasn't enough time to do a test chip. So they just went ahead and just made 250,000 of these or just like hundreds of thousands <laughs> of them. Like, <laughs> Man. <laughs> yeah, they, they spent millions of dollars building these chips. And so they shipped them all off to China. And I'd done a reference board. I'm like, just mount it to this board. It should just work. And <clears throat> so I get an angry phone call from this really mad New York toy executive yelling at me like the, it didn't work. Like, ah, yelling, yelling, yelling. <clears throat> and uh, he's like, you get on a plane, you get over there, you solve this. I don't care how you solve it. And I'm like, oh shit, did I like mess up the chip design? Because there's not much you can do if you've like fucked up the chip design. It's like, (laughs) it's metal layers and diffusion layers on a piece of silicon. Like, (laughs) so I get over there and uh, I walk into the factory and they hand me one of the units and I open it up and I look inside and they had taken my reference design and thrown away all the, decoupling capacitors and they had relayed the circuit board out to make it cheaper. And they, in fact, they had taken the ground plane and they split it in half and had like a seven mil trace between the two halves of it, it was terrible. <laughs> like there was no chance of it running at all. This was like a, I think our max clock on it was 33 megahertz. So you need a ground plane and you need decoupling capacitors on it, but this is a toy factory. They're used to like the one megahertz, uh, 8051 based, you know, toys that, you put one cheap undervalued uh, electrolytic at the battery terminal and that's it. Um, so I, I put, put my finger on the back of the circuit board and the thing booted up and I'm like, 
oh, thank God, I'm not going to have to run to Mexico and hide. Um, from <laughs> Uh, this is an example of like pivoting real quick. I couldn't believe this was my first time in a toy factory, first time in a factory in China. So like, well, here's your problem. And so they like throw a bunch of people on doing a circuit board layout. They do a circuit board layout in like an afternoon. The next day, like someone cruises in with like a big stack of circuit boards and they wire bond these things, glob top these chips you know, pick and place all the parts, boom, done. And the pilot run was underway and they're like make a hundred of them like in like two, two, three days after like such a disastrous um, situation. Like trying to do that in the United States, it'd be impossible. I just like how like they basically changed the circuit board so much and it was like, it's not working. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other weird thing that they did on this was it was a two layer FR4 board. And so it was kind of, it had two buttons at the top, which were these carbon pill button um, type. And I, the reference board that I had given, like had two little ears that popped up that um, the buttons were going to be mounted to. They had done their analysis where it was cheaper to cut the top of the board off where those two um, kind of like dog ears are and make it a single, a single sided uh, phenolic board with jumper wires. So with like four or five jumper wires to do those buttons and whatever was on that. It was kind of crazy that it was cheaper to have an operator sit there and solder little wires. And it was totally a nightmare though. I mean, the, the yield was terrible. Like the operator would like short things out when they're putting all these wires on there, but they didn't mind. Labor's cheap. They would just open them back up and they would debug the problem and then put it back together. Same factory. Uh, it was my first time experiencing like weird toy um, product testing, I guess is the best way to describe it. So the uh, line that was kind of adjacent to us was doing this kind of like doll that cried. And so they had operators assembling this doll, stuffing the electronics in it and then jamming it into the, the carcass of a, a doll. And, <laughs> and at the end they had an operator they would line these things up on a, a big swing that was hanging from the ceiling. So she would put like 20 or 30 of these things laying uh, face down on the swing. And the way the toy worked is the doll would start crying. And if you rocked it, it had like a rock sensor in it. It would stop crying after a certain number of rocks. And so she would go down the line and she would hit everyone on top with her fist and they would start crying. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then she would rock it the 10 or 20 times it took to uh, make the, the, the doll stop crying. And the ones that didn't stop crying because the rocker sensor or something was broken, she would take them and just, she had this bin that she'd lift the top up and she would throw it in. It would still be crying. And when she lift the bin up, there'd just be this, this is a bin of crying babies. <laughs> <laughs> that's morbid <laughs> I, I loved it it was like but you know what was really sad was this was 2004 and like i don't know i probably had a flip phone back then i had no way to record this i mean i would have loved to be been able to record this event happening it was just i could not believe it <laughs> but i mean this is uh this is a day in the life of a toy manufacturing line worker 
there was another product there. Um, I didn't actually get to see how they tested the final product, but I saw them like doing the prototypes in the model shop. And oh, the model shop is another amazing place. Like I wish I had a model shop, but um, they're working on SpongeBob SquarePants sling toy. It was like this thing, like SpongeBob's arms were like linked together and there was a piece of surgical rubber hosing between the arms and you would grab his body and you put your thumb on the surgical tubing and you pull back and then you release and it had some kind of acceleration sensor in it to tell that it was like flying through the air and it'd be like, ah, make a screaming sound. Into a trash can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure wherever they, I'm not even sure they were manufacturing yet, but I saw in the model shop, they were testing this, at least prototyping this thing. Um, but you have to come up with testing for these kinds of uh, apparatus to make sure that it's uh, working. So they must have had something that they would sling them when they... Sling them in a big ball pit and then go collect them all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be a really annoying one because you would sling it and it would go like flying mm. away from you. And if it didn't make the noise, then you'd have to go pick it up and put it in a bin. <laughs> There was another uh, toy there. Um, shoot, what was this one? Uh, this may have been one of my other trips. I can't remember what the toy was exactly, but I was surprised at the waste. So I saw them when they were doing the rework. So they have a rework station where the ones that don't pass go to. And this one, obviously the economics of it, if the uh, circuit board didn't work, they just threw the circuit board away. So they would open the plastic up and they would unsolder the circuit board and it would just went into this kind of trash bin. And I just could not believe the mountain of waste in that bin. It was just completely full of these circuit boards. The yields were must have been terrible. But they for whatever reason the plastics were worthwhile and the circuit boards were not recoverable. So I have to say, every toy that I did, um, the yields were pretty good. So I'm proud of that. That's actually amazing that the labor to take that circuit board out and toss it and put a new one in is that was offset by the piece that PCB price being that inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, it's gotten more expensive to manufacture in China, so maybe they um, maybe don't have operators doing as much manual stuff, but it's still. Like when I was there, I was talking to one of the the ladies working on the production line. And she was telling me she'd been learning English. So she was ex very excited to talk mm -hmm. to me. And um, <laughs> there's another story to this I should say tell too. But um, she was excited to talk to me. She'd been learning English through watching movies. Um, she was quite good. And uh, she wanted to move up in the company so she could interface with uh, Eng English-speaking um, clients. But she had, like, her family had saved up enough money from the village that she lived in to send her into Shenzhen to just for the chance to get a job in a factory. And so she found herself in Shenzhen and lucked into a job. And she was working for, like, a few thousand dollars a year, um, which she was telling me that it was just her whole family, even her extended family back in her village were going to be wealthy because she was doing this. And she was sending all the money back to her, her family. There's such a huge gap. So we think like a couple thousand dollars a year, that's just like, you know, 
how could we do that to these workers? But the opportunities they have, you know, out in a small village are even less. So yeah, that was interesting. So the other kind of side story that that reminded me of is like, so one of the times I was debugging a, a toy and usually you don't debug it on the production line. They just let you have like some lab space. But this time it made sense that I like had an oscilloscope or something and I was looking at them as they came off the end of the production line. And it's almost 100% women working the production line. And there are the minders, I call them, like the men that walk up and down the aisles that kind of like watch the women, I guess, to keep them working. And uh, so... <laughs> so they're just, this guy's kind of walking and he's just constantly looking over the women operator's shoulders, not saying much. And like every time he'd get to me and he'd look over my shoulder, I'd whip around and be like, hey, how you doing? And he would just like snap to attention and just like walk off. Like, <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know, like if he just wasn't used to women like uh, addressing him with such authority or what, but it's, it's very, uh, it felt very backwards to me there. And it was very odd that it was women operators almost exclusively on the production line. And some other funny things happen there. Like I'm a monster when I go to uh, mainland China, I'm just so much bigger. And so I'm kind of a, I'm only five, eight. So I'm not particularly tall here in the United States, but I'm just much taller than most um, people there. And when I, Go over to the factory, I usually pick up um, someone from the toy factory that will take me through the checkpoint and take me over the factory and just kind of guide me through the whole process. And so she was this really small woman and she was talking to me. And at this time I was playing roller derby. And so I was really buff and exercising all the time. And she kept looking at my arms. And I'm like, I struck up a conversation. She's like, your arms are so big and muscular. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I play this game called roller derby and they have us like do push-ups and pull-ups and stuff. She's like, oh, it's not a good look. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, she, she was a trip. She was just telling me like how big I was and like, it's not a good look and you're already big. Why are you doing this? <laughs> Different cultures. It's, it's fun. That's, that's fantastic. Um, actually... Jerry, where can more people find out about you and Tilt 5? Well, uh, go support our Kickstarter. Tilt 5 on Kickstarter. Kickstarter, Kickstarter, Kickstarter. So I guess go to kickstarter.com and search for Tilt 5 and they'll find it. And bring your credit card. <laughs> you still have 13 <laughs> days. That's right. But they're going fast. You, you want to make sure you get in there for the July order. All right. Okay. I'll take my CEO hat off. Um, so for me, you can find, I spend most of my time on Twitter, trolling Twitter. So if you want to come hang out with me on Twitter, that's a good place. Um, don't do Facebook, evil Facebook. No, no, no. Um, on my YouTube channel, Jerry Ellsworth, uh, I have a lot of science videos there. I like to do, um, take on hardcore science problems and try to dissect them and make YouTube videos. So that's a, a neat place to go. Things like doing your own semiconductors in your garage or, Sometimes I'll do art projects where I'll make a, I made a bass guitar out of a Commodore 64 that uh, ran all of the, uh, well, I did frequency counting on the strings and then I turned those into notes that went into the original sound chip from the Commodore 64 and it was really fun. Um, walked out to lava flows in Hawaii and scooped lava 
uh, with a metal shovel and my tour guide thought I was insane, but I did it anyway. <laughs> did you a- ask to do that or did you just like show up with a shovel ready to go? I showed up with a shovel. I had this theory <laughs> that it would work. So there's, um, there's these weird group of off gridders that uh, live alongside the uh, decimated lava flow area. And actually some of them actually live on the old, uh, where the lava had flown, uh, flowed and uh, destroyed houses and stuff. And they build new houses out there, but they're just kind of off grid, but they'll take you on tours out to where the lava is squirting out of the ground um, for like two or $300, uh, which is really fun. I, it's, it's not safe, um, but I highly recommend it. <laughs> but they'll take you out there. And I showed up um, with these metal and wood handled shovels because when I was a kid, I saw like an, a Nova special where someone uh, was like a vulcanist, I think is what they're called. And they'd go out there with these long metal pipes and they would like pick up scoops of lava and like analyze it. And I'm like, well, best thing I can like get at the hardware store is like a metal shovel. And maybe the wood handle will just burn off instantly, but at least I'll be able to poke at it once. And so I show up in the tour guide. He's like, ah, that shovel is just going to melt down. Like, I don't think so. I think that there's a lot, it's mostly, you know, silica in the lava. I think it's actually much cooler than uh, the melting point of steel. And he's like, no, it's going to melt. Like, okay. So we go on out there and there's a couple things they tell you when you're going out across the lava flow, because there's microclimates that show up there because of all this heat and rain. And so, it rains like in that area quite a bit and you'll have like these complete whiteouts and they warn you like if all of a sudden and it can come on within seconds, uh, a total whiteout where you can't see anybody, do not move. I'll talk to you the entire time. Don't move. And uh, it, it didn't white out on us, but um, kind of wish it would have. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded cool, right? Like just a sudden like, uh, fog comes in so thick that you can't even see anything. And that's when the dragon comes out of the volcano. That's right. The eerie mist settles into the lava <laughs> flow. The villagers told you you shouldn't go, but you do it anyway. <laughs> so, so wait, wait, wait. Did the, did the shovel melt? Oh, oh, well, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay, okay. So one other thing is uh, super cool. Like when uh, liquid rock cools, it becomes very hard really quick. So there's like these areas where it's, the ground is still gr- glowing through these cracks and crevices. And you have to cross these to get to where the lava is flowing. So the the tour guide would stop. They go first, before. right? They go first. <laughs> so they go, they walk across and check the safety of it. And then they have you walk across and they're like, do not stop for very long on this uh, this area. And as you're walking across, it's so hot that the soles of your shoes are getting slippery because it's melting the uh, kind of rubbery plastic on the bottom of your shoes. It's really cool. But you, as you're walking across, you're looking down uh, into these cracks and it's glowing maybe two inches below you. It's really, really cool. Um, there's always a chance there could be a cavern underneath that opens up and swallows you, right? So it's, that's why it's not the safest thing. So we get to where the lava is squirting out of the the ground, which is so cool. First thing, I run up with the shovel and I grab a big scoop of it. 
And my first thing I, re I realized, like, I don't know what I was thinking. It's like, this is heavy. This is really heavy. It's liquid rock. As I'm walking back with a big scoop of this molten rock, like this is rock. And then I like dump it on the ground a little ways away from all this heat. Like it's hard to get close to the lava because there's so much radiated heat. But I like dumped it on the ground. I'm poking it with the shovel and I'm kind of forming it. I'm like, it's like taffy. It's, um, it's amazing. Mm. Um, and so a, a couple of us went out there and we had two shovels and we spent like two hours like scooping lava and playing with it. And uh, every once in a while the handle would get kind of burny and smoky, but it ended up not... Um, uh, melting the shovel at all. I was right. It was mostly like glassy uh, silicates. Uh, when we were done, I just heaved the shovel right into this big uh, liquid gooey uh, lava and it just kind of flowed over top of the shovel and <laughs> buried for all time, <laughs> which is funny. My On my YouTube channel, I love the haters you know, come on out haters, come just be mean to me, try to be because it just all bounces off. Um, but my lava video brings out the most hateful people like, I, ho I hope you fall face first in and die, bitch. Like, <laughs> my response to them is like, lol. <laughs> then I miss Matt. And then they try something out. I'm like, lol, lol. And then the other like haters are like, I can't believe you polluted the environment by throwing that shovel into the lava flow. I'm like, give me a break. <laughs> it's going to be like a hundred million years before that uh, piece of metal surfaces again. Yeah. And, and just the fact that that volcano alone is spewing out so much stuff anyways. Yeah. All the sulfur docks. I mean, it yeah. smells really sulfurous. Like, um, one of the other things is he warned us, like when these like microclimates come through, it mixes with the sulfur and makes uh, sulfuric acid. So your eyes and nose will burn a little bit. And he's like, don't worry. It's not that bad. <laughs> not that You'll bad. live. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I definitely, if I go back to the big Island again in Hawaii, I'm going to go, you know, see if I can get closer to the main vent. I think that would be amazing. You know, that the temperatures there probably will melt uh, a shovel. Because, you know, it's probably pretty damn intense there. With all this recent volcanic activity, I don't know, there may be other opportunities to uh, cause chaos um, and piss off YouTube. Uh, Some fresh vents. Walkers. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jerry, for coming on to our podcast. It was a lot of fun talking to you. It was super fun. It's an honor. Thank you for uh, having me on. I'll put my CEO hat on. Please back us. We need your help. Well, hey, maybe in like eight or nine months, we could uh, potentially have you back on to talk about the new war stories. Oh, I would love that. I'm, I'm sure stuff's going to go completely sideways. Maybe uh, when I'm over in um, in the factory, like uh, dealing with them, we could do like in real time, like log in. Like, oh, my God, the, my, my, my tools fell on the ground and got dented. And now uh, we have to rebuild them in one week. Yeah, go scoop up some lava and rebuild them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm down. So, Jerry, you want to sign us out? This was the micro fab, macro fab. Let's <laughs> uh, go with it. That was the macro fab engineering podcast. I was your guest, Jerry Ellsworth. And we were your hosts, Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.
And the way the toy worked is the dog would start crying, and if you rocked it, it had like a sensor in it, it would stop after a certain number of And so she would go down the line and she would hit everyone on with her and they would start. (laughs) (laughs) And then she would hit the 10 or 20 times it took to uh, make the, the, the stop. And the ones that didn't stop because her sensor or something was broken, she would take them and just, she had this, she'd the top up and she would throw it in. It would still be crying. She lit the bin up. There'd just be this. Just a bin of crying babies. (laughs) (laughs) That's morbid. (laughs) Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. Unfortunately, we do not have any volcanoes or lava there. Um, If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.